I look around the room this morning and I see a lot of familiar faces, although for me it has been several years since I have been here. And what a joy to partner with my friend, Pastor Crystal, and uh, we've known each other for a number of years, and now to, to work together closely in the city here. Um, thank you for that and for your support for the school, and it's just a, a real honor to be here today. I do see some familiar faces from the school, and I am so sorry you can't get away from me, the students. <laughs> They're like, I just want to go to church without Rich speaking at me once. And I feel really bad for, for you, but um, hang in there. Um, we'll be okay. But uh, thank you again. And um, uh, just a couple of thoughts, uh, as Pastor Crystal has mentioned, just a little maybe a bit of a refreshing. We have this motto at the school that says, we train leaders, pastors, scholars. You can see the list. We train leaders. That's our mission and mandate. We've been doing so since 1939. You can go to the next slide. The the idea behind this is that we want to train innovative, that we're an innovative leadership training center producing spirit-filled, servant-hearted followers of Christ. Does that not sound like something the world needs? I I think we could all agree that there are some incredibly difficult and challenging things that we are living through and working through and walking through as a society and as a culture, and we need leaders who are spirit-filled, servant-hearted followers of Christ, to step into the gap with courage and with conviction. The good news is that it doesn't just rest on these fine-looking Bible colleges, two rows here, maybe some I'm missing. It doesn't just rest on them. And I've come here to invite all of us to be part of this. Whether you ever walk in the doors over at the school or sit in on a Wednesday night, master's equipped course for six weeks, all of us are called to follow Jesus and to allow him to use us. So that's my theme this morning, and we're going to get into that quickly. It was in the, um, it was in the fall of 1995. It was, in fact, November the 24th, 1995. I was on staff at Liberty Church in Bowenville. I had just graduated the uh, spring before from Eastern Pentecostal Bible College. I have a good friend sitting in this room. Brother Bjorgen, where are you? We have known each other all our lives. Literally, he he was there when I was born. He was a pastor at the church in Ottawa when, when, when I was a wee little kid, and we have done life forever together. And I remember those great days at Eastern, and I graduated from the school, and I went on staff, volunteer, at Liberty Church in Bowmanville. And one of the ways that the church was able to pay me was that they gave me a car. And um, this was a baby blue Subaru. It was no thicker in terms of uh, its construction than a Coke can. And I experienced, I mean, this is obviously why they gave this car to this young buck. Uh, There was a gentleman in the the church who owned a dealership, and he said, here, have the car for a dollar. And it provided plenty of adventure for me. I remember we were on a pastor board retreat at Lakeshore Camp, and on the way home on the 401, as we were coming back from Coburg to Bowmanville, all of a sudden, out of the blue, the hood whipped up and up wrapped itself around my windshield. I mean, it was a, an adventure. 
quite often, as I was driving, we, we were fine, we we're safe, we, we bent the thing back in and made, made our way back home. Uh, uh, Quite often, as I would drive, the, the horn in the middle of the steering wheel would simply fall out. And it would just kind of, you know, I'd turn the co- corner and it would just fall out. And I'd, I'd put it in the console and, you know, start over again. The baby blue Subaru. So, November the 24th, it's a Monday morning. We had um, finished weekend ministry. And... Uh, Kim and I had just gotten married. We were, we were married for one month at that point in time, and she was working at a lab in Oshawa, and it was my day off, and so I got up, I kind of put on a hat to cover. Back in the day, uh, it was cool to rock a mullet. Now, I called it hockey hair. That's when I actually had hair. Uh, so I, I kind of threw on my hat. I looked scraggly. I looked kind of, you know, just hoodie. I hadn't showered it didn't look great, but I was just driving Kim to work that morning. And as we make our way from where we were living in Oshawa into uh, into downtown, um, suddenly I notice that the police officer who had been following me for a little bit of a distance has his lights on, and he's wanting me to pull over. So I do the dutiful thing, and I pull over, and. This is when all of the excitement begins. He comes up and he asks me for license and registration, please. Well, like I had just been up for five minutes. Who's thinking about grabbing their wallet on a Monday morning after a long ministry weekend? I didn't have my wallet. There was no way that I could produce my license and registration. Oh, and by the way, sir, why is your horn sitting in the console? And... Um, oh, this, this car, the license plates don't match what we had put into the computer system. Long story short, I received seven tickets. Here they are. Here's what I received tickets for that day. All right. Operating unsafe vehicle. Jack, I, I knew that from a long time ago. Like... You know, when hoods wrap around windshields, those are unsafe vehicles. Driver failed to surrender license. No, no kidding, it's at my house, in my apartment. That's where that is. I can easily get that for you. Failed to have insurance card in wallet. So, of course, I'm getting a ticket for that. Failed to notify change of address on the license. That's fully on me. I just got married. We just moved to Bowmanville. I hadn't changed the... the I'm, I'm making excuses, am I, am I not, right? Uh, drive motor vehicle, no validation on plate. This is starting to get a little bit more serious than you left your wallet at home. Use validation for uh, furnishing uh, for a license vehicle. So they're starting to give me tickets because in this moment, they believe that I have stolen the car. Use plate not authorized for vehicle. Seven tickets right here. I am not making this story up. You're wondering, and how in the world did you become a Bible college president? You've got, you've got conviction after conviction. Rich, what's going on here? So they, uh, they made Kim walk to work, and no word of a lie, they put handcuffs on me and put me in the back of the cruiser. And they ushered me up the street to the Oshawa police station. I had never felt so bad in my life. 
The worst part about it is, this was about now, after the ordeal, this was close to 9 o'clock in the morning. As I'm driving in the backseat of the cruiser to the Oshawa police station, I'm looking out the window and I'm just kind of noticing what's going on and what's, what's around me. When, to my horror, I make eye contact with two of my pastors who were heading to a hospital visitation. Rick Hilsden and Mark Scar, who were the pastors I was working for at Liberty Church in Bowmanville, were out on a hospital visitation, and their eyes locked eyes with mine, and they saw me, and they started laughing and followed the cop car to the station where they attempted to get me out of jail. That was the morning that I was captured. And I was a pastor. And suddenly, with seven tickets, I was being hauled off to jail because what they had discovered was that that particular car, the one, the baby blue Subaru, the license didn't match the registration, didn't match the plates, didn't match me, and they had that car registered as a stolen vehicle. And here I was, the driver of the car. And there was no excuses being given. No, I'm a pastor, trust me. You don't look like a pastor, sir. Long hair, hoodie, ball cap, etc. scruffy. This was my story of being captured. Captured. The word is used in a variety of ways, isn't it? This is the way that I experienced the word. But it's used in a variety of ways to describe someone or something that grabs a hold of you or how it occupies all of your attention and entirely overtakes your life. You can become consumed by whatever it is that has captured you. Now, maybe you get great joy at the sight of ice cream, like this picture, and you're captured by eating ice cream. Young kids just wanting to be able to have ice cream. Or what about kids and balloons? Is there anything more magnetic of an attraction between a kid and a balloon? I mean, it's just like immediately you see balloons and kids coming. There's this draw. They're captured by the idea of balloons. As you sit here this morning, here on a Sunday morning, I want you to ask yourself, have I been captured by something? Maybe it's your pet. Maybe it's a sport or a pastime or shopping or a particular person. Maybe it's the $1.50 hot dogs at Costco that you just can't get enough of. Or it's Tim Horton's coffee. Or your love for the mall or a particular author that you appreciate. There's something that has captured you. And if you're sitting here and you're sitting beside your spouse, I hope you're nudging each other and you're saying, I'm captured by you. I, I still am captured by you. Maybe it's a person. If you were to be honest right now, the question I have is what or perhaps who has captured you? What are you being captured by? What's your attention being given to? What's the amount, most amount of time you're giving to something in life? As I said to our students just this past week in first year, your attention influences your direction. And your direction determines your destination. So this morning, the title of my message is Captured, Living Out God's Will. Looking at the story of Acts chapter 3. And so I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 3. We're going to begin in, in verse 1. 
One afternoon, Peter and John went to the temple of, for the three o'clock prayer. As they came to the entrance called the Beautiful Gate, they were captured by the sight of a man crippled from birth being carried and placed at the entrance to the temple. He was often brought there to beg for money from those going in to worship. When he noticed Peter and John going into the temple, he begged them for money. So we learn here in the story that Peter and John have been captured. Not physically, of course, like I was with handcuffs in the back of a police cruiser. But more specifically, we see here that their attention has been captured. They are captured by the sight of a crippled man. You could say that they were captured by tragedy. You know, the narrator, Luke, fills us in on the story, what has led to this individual. It's a tragic story. Crippled from birth, Luke says, and we understand that he has been left to beg for his livelihood for 38 years. Just imagine for a moment what it would have been like to be him, to rely on the kindness of others, to depend on donations just to make ends meet. People bringing you in every day just so that you could have hope for one more day. I think about the human experience, and it can be painful, can't it be? Pastor Crystal mentioned that earlier. There are so many hurting and broken people in the world around us. In fact, perhaps you have faced some sort of challenge or issue in your own life. Peter and John were instantly drawn to this man, captured by his situation. They gave him their full attention. I'm sure over 38 years, hundreds of people coming into worship had walked right on by him. But here in this moment, two apostles of Jesus, their attention had been caught by this man. They didn't see a disability in front of them. They saw an exceptionality, a person with great potential and promise. This speaks to the essence of what it looks like to be a Jesus follower, being captured by people around you, no matter what their story is. I confess that I, I love people watching. I don't know how many people here like to sit and watch people, but I, I, I like to do that. It kind of sounds a bit creepy, I suppose, but it's one of my favorite things to do. I, I, I enjoy it. It, it. I just start to think, I mean, what is their story, and where have they come from, and where are they going, and you know, what's their family all about? And it, 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 it's something that I enjoy to do. In fact, I remember one of the um, highlights of my life was the summer of 2019. That feels so far away. But when the Toronto Raptors won the NBA championship, I went downtown with three million of my closest friends and we celebrated. Talk about people watching that day. I mean, it was fascinating to just, you know, kind of be in the moment and celebrate with everybody. It's something that I really love to do. People are fascinating to me, and I'm captivated by what I see. But that kind of capturing is different than what Acts 3 is telling us. It's different than that. My, my people watching is purely for entertainment. I, I feel very little connection to the people that I saw at that parade. Rarely was I moved to, to, to respond in any sort of action, keeping the distance in 
You know, instead, you know, and people thinking that you might be, you know, some kind of a creep. So you don't really get involved with strangers. But here, we see something different. Peter and John, something happens deep on the inside of their hearts. There's a connection. Their hearts are breaking for what they saw in front of them, and they were moved to action. They did something about the person they saw. When, when you encounter tragedy, does your heart break for people? When you see your friends going through difficult times, does something happen on the inside? Have you been captured by tragedy of others? You know, I think that it takes a different kind of living to allow your heart to be captured in this way. I think it requires a different kind of posture, a, a different kind of caring to engage in the stories of the people around us, to understand what our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members are going through and walking through. Because the, the, the fact of the matter is, the truth be told, we are generally, normally, rather self-involved folk. If we were to be totally honest, we are more concerned for ourselves on a day-to-day -day basis about how life unfolds for us than we are for others. So how in the world did Peter and John, humans just like you and I, find themselves in this situation? What caused them to be captured like this? I believe the answer is found in the chapter previous, Acts chapter 2. The empowerment of the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, changed everything for Peter. Before Acts 2, however, was Luke 22, where we see Peter denying Jesus three times. In fact, he wanted nothing to do with Jesus. No reputation, no association. You cannot link me with this man. I don't care. Spending three years and all of a sudden denying him. He was worried about his self and his own reputation, focused just on me, me, me. Yet, here in this moment... Rather than having or living with no hope, Peter is clearly a changed man. He was now envisioning something new and something different. He was seeing people differently. He was envisioning the miraculous. He was seeing through spirit-filled eyes. And everything changed in his life to the new possibilities and the realities and a new hope. This living hope of Jesus Christ had changed everything. Peter, who had previously chopped off the ear of a Roman soldier because he had no care for that individual, no regard for his well-being, was now stopping to connect with a crippled man at the entrance to the temple. He was a totally different person. The day of Pentecost was a turning moment for Peter, and he was living out his words from his sermon and putting it into action in his own life. Friends, I believe that the Spirit's work in each and every one of us. It softens our hearts to the human tragedy that we find around us. To be more aware and in tune with the struggles and the challenges that friends and family face. It allows us to enter into the story of people's lives and point them to the living hope that they can find in Jesus. So my challenge is this. Are you stirred by the tragedies of other people? Do you envision yourself being part of the solution to human suffering? That is exactly why you exist as a church. Why Northview Church, the body of Christ, exists. The community of believers 
to step into the challenges here in the city, filled with the Spirit, and to see differences made in the lives of those who live here. You have a divine purpose for why you are the Jesus followers who gather in this building in the north end of the city to be set apart and to be sent out. You are set apart by God for a purpose. Peter and John were living that life on the edge, recognizing that Jesus had sent them out. We're set apart. We're not to be like the world. We're not to blend in with the culture. We're not to conform to the ways of the world. We are set apart for something. But it's being set apart by God. Scripture tells us that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is who you and I are for a purpose. This is not by chance or some kind of cosmic accident or random sequencing. This is purposeful from God choosing each and every one for something to do. Set apart by God for a purpose to be sent out. Sent out to be captured by people, no matter their story, no matter who they are. Playing a part in God's redeeming and reconciling mission in the world. And a 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We are ambassadors of Christ. We are, we are his representatives here in the world, exactly where we are planted. The truth of the New Testament is as unique as we've ever seen in any sort of literature or any sort of system of thought. Much attention has surrounded the Bible's affirmation that humans are created in the image of God. You know, in Bible days, most ancient Near Eastern societies had an incredibly robust understanding and vision of divine beings. They call them their gods. And in fact, they made their gods the central part of their culture and their customs. Everything around, revolved around an understanding of the gods. And it formed the foundation of a social hierarchy. But ultimately led to the exploitation of the weak and those without influence and those without, powerful, without power. These societies would often grant special status to the monarchs as divine image bearers. And they would recognize them as the kings of their empire. Important individuals who needed to be worshipped themselves. Egyptians referred to Pharaoh as the image or likeness of a god. And the, this individual would command some divine authority or d ask for some religious devotion. And, and today even we find ourselves, we refer to modern celebrities as divas, the, the Latin word for goddesses. It's this residual effect of the idea of ancient perspectives of equating elites with divinity. Yet scripture advances precisely the opposite viewpoint, a completely different worldview. The real innovation of the biblical narrative, what sets it apart from other worldviews, is not that spoken people or humans are spoken of as, as just mere individuals, but that we are made and fashioned and created in the image of God. That all humans are made in His image, not just the kings and queens. Scripture elevates every person to the dignity of royalty. It tells us we are far more valuable than worms. We are image bearers 
of God. Peter and John completely get this understanding so they don't see a 38-year-old individual who just gets ignored in a moment. Instead, they're captured by this man in a story. He had nothing to offer them. He wasn't a king. He wasn't royalty. He wasn't useful. Yet now he was the center of attention to two of Jesus' apostles. The Jesus view, the lens through which Christians need to see the world, says humans are inherently valuable regardless of their usefulness because we're made in his image. So the question today, does my heart break for people as it should? Peter and John captured by tragedy. As we continue on in the story, we recognize that they're not only captured by tragedy, but they're captured by, by treasure. Peter and John, looking straight into the eyes of the crippled man, said, look at us. Now, expecting a gift, he readily gave them his attention. Then Peter said, I don't have money, but I'll give you this. By the power of the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. The man says, I don't have money. I think probably most of us can likely relate to that these days. The sense that we just don't have enough money to kind of make ends meet, things getting more and more expensive. Peter and John, I don't have money. Money, it really is the topic of so much of conversations in the world today. Captures our attention, doesn't it? I I did a little research recently and I, I discovered that the single largest donation in Canadian history was given to McGill University. I'm like, could it please be given to Masters? It's called the McCall McBain Scholarships. It's a $200 million gift by John and Marcy McCall McBain, who are the founders of the classified advertising giant Trader Classified Media. I also discovered that the most significant charitable donation ever, that one was the Canadian one, is from Warren Buffett, who made a $37 billion pledge to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And it is payable upon his, his, his death as directed in his will. He's already also committed an additional $46 billion. That man has money. And you hear the size of these numbers, and it's hard to imagine, isn't it? It kind of is mind-blowing. You're kind of thinking, oh, what I could do with money like that, if only I had that, then I could really make a difference. If I just had a little bit more, then I could reach out. You know, it's, it's not lost on me that Masters operates on a large part because of the generosity of individuals who come along and support the mission of the school. And we've seen so much accomplished over these years because of people participating by giving. Money makes things happen, doesn't it? Money changes situations. But honestly, what was money going to do for this man? He had been sitting there for 38 years begging. You would have thought by now that if money was going to change his life, it would have happened already. But it didn't. Further... Did Peter and John really, did they really have no money? Like, 
They weren't carrying any kind of plastic. You know, they couldn't just kind of swipe. There was no shekels in their tunic. Like, are we really thinking that? Uh, they likely had something with them. Not one coin at all. I think Peter and John, who, who were traveling around t- from town to town, likely had something with them. But they were traveling full of the Spirit, being captured by tragedy and be captured by treasure. What, what do I mean by that? Well, remember something here for a moment. The guys had walked and lived and had served for three years under Jesus. They had happened upon sick people before. They had seen blind people before. They had encountered dead people before. They had a great experience in these moments. They had happened to recognize that this was not something new for them, but in this moment, they saw something different. They had been there in the past, and Jesus had taught them how to handle these moments. What did Jesus do in these moments, and what should we do now? Without hesitation, without questioning, without pause, they knew what to do. They knew that silver and gold, it doesn't capture us anymore because we have something far more valuable to give. Peter says, I'll give you this. He wasn't reaching into his pocket to hand the few coins that he may have had. I'll give you what has captured us. Peter and John understood the deep need of this man. They weren't unsympathetic to his financial need. And they were not ignoring his physical need. But they recognized a crucial aspect of following in Jesus' steps. The solution to people's needs, whatever it is, is Jesus himself. Jesus is the solution. They saw Jesus deal with these moments in the past and they were ready First, they were able to engage in the suffering that they'd recognized and gave the dignity to this man that he deserved because the Spirit was living and breathing in their hearts, driving them forward. They were able to enter into this man's story and see him for how God saw him. But second, they recognized that being captured by money was was not the thing, but being captured by a far greater treasure. That was what mattered. They had something to give this man that was priceless. This treasure they gave the man was greater than the silver and the gold that the man was asking for. They gave him the gift of Jesus. And I'll give you this, Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. They had been so captured by Jesus. He was their greatest treasure that they were compelled to share Jesus with others. I read the story and I think, what story? And I think, what an incredible way to live. Further on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, verse 23, 28, it talks about living life this way. In him we live and move and have our being. Everything about who we are captured by Jesus. And in and out of that, that's how we live. So my question for you is, is he your greatest treasure? Do you live in such a way that displays to the world that there is nothing compared to Jesus? It makes me think about a story that Jesus told. He talks about a particular man of great wealth. I sort of envision this man walking home from work one day. And he's likely in, the, in his mind, he's kind of perhaps 
counting all of the things that he has and the money that he's made perhaps in that particular day. And as he's walking and as he's making his way home, the story goes, as Jesus said, he happens to see a field. And for whatever reason, he's drawn to explore the field. And when he explores the field, he realizes that there's a treasure of great value. Jesus continues to tell the story. The man goes home and sells everything he has so that he can obtain this field, this treasure of great value. And Jesus said, that's exactly, that is exactly what we get when we come to him, when we're captured by him. We can have everything in the world, but if we don't have Jesus, we've got nothing. Is he our greatest treasure? So Peter and John, captured by tragedy, their hearts are breaking for what they see in front of them, ready to share the treasure of Jesus. And finally, that they are captured by, by touch. Peter held out his right hand to the crippled man. As he pulled the man to his feet, suddenly power surged into this, his crippled feet and ankles. The man jumped up, stood there for a moment, stunned, and then began to walk around. As he went into the temple courts with Peter and John, he leapt for joy and shouted praises to God. The power of God flowing through Peter and a miracle, an incredible miracle takes place. What I love about this is that this is not just a story. This is the life of a New Testament believer. Spirit-filled, spirit-led, spirit-directed, spirit-driven. This is the life that all of us who follow Christ can live. Captured by tragedy and captured by treasure, Peter and John are now captured by touch. They understand the assignment. You know, the assignment that came to them, laid out by Jesus. The words recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Before ascending to heaven, Jesus says to them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Fast forward ten days later after that moment to the day of Pentecost when Jesus' words were fulfilled and the Spirit descended upon the 120 waiting in the upper room. If I'm a disciple experiencing this and I'm seeing what's going on, I recognize the connection at work. Jesus said this would happen and it did. And then as a result, we must live as his witnesses. So I guess that's what I must do. And that's what Peter and John are doing everywhere they walk and everywhere they go, they're looking because Jesus said this is going to happen. And when it happens, you need to act and do this. Well, okay, Jesus, that's what we're going to do. They're instantly just simply walking, keeping in step with the Spirit, one thing after the other, not really knowing what's ahead. And now in this moment, maybe some days, weeks, months, we're not quite sure, the fire is still burning deep in their hearts. It's clear that they understand that they have been sent out to touch the world around them, compelled to touch people with the power of Jesus Christ. Friends, I, I don't know you. you. You don't know me well. But I have something specific that I've come to share with you today. And it's this. 
As I look around the room, I want to remind each and every one of you that we are all called to do the same. And to do so, God gives us his gifts to accomplish this. As described in several New Testament passages, these gifts that he gives every single one of us, no matter who we are, no matter what age, stage of life, whether you've grown up in the church or not, you're given gifts. These gifts are unique gifts. There's a divine design that is different from mine. So it makes sense that he's going to work through you and work through me differently. They're unique, but each and every one of us have been given these gifts. These gifts are purposeful gifts. God is seeking to accomplish something specific in someone specific or somewhere specific. So his gifts will be somewhat specific for those moments. Not only are they unique and purposeful, but they're, they're timely gifts. The Lord breaks into your situation in order to spur a breakthrough in your situation so that you can break out of your situation. I'm sure many of you have experienced the working and moving of the gifts of the Spirit in operation in tangible ways. These gifts of the, of the Spirit Hospitality, prophecy, mercy, or generosity. Teaching, serving, leading, interceding, just to name a few. These are meant to enable you to do remarkable things in the name of Jesus. So you don't need a certain heritage. You don't need to be part of a famous family. You don't need to be someone else. You don't need to pretend or imitate. Just be you, captured by tragedy and treasure and touch walking into the world and engaging with the people around you. All we really need to do is to give what we've been given ourselves, to reach out with gifted hands, just like Peter and John, and to touch the world around us. There are touch points literally everywhere. If our eyes are tuned to the opportunities if we're able to ask Holy Spirit to go with us each and every day when we wake up, there are touch points for all of us. I remember when we moved from the city of Ottawa, came on staff at Masters, and the school was in Toronto at the time, and we decided to move to a community called Brooklyn, Ontario. It's North Whitby. When we moved into this townhome community, our family of six, four kids, Kim and I, and we didn't know anybody. It was a bit of a newer community and a bunch of new people sort of becoming a neighborhood for the first time. If you knew my story, you would know and understand that I grew up without a father in my home, and so I had a sense of what brokenness in homes would look like, and so much of my experiences as a youth pastor were dealing with young people who had similar experiences. So it was interesting, me, interesting for me to know that in this particular community, there were many single moms with kids. And we lived at the end of a court. And at this end of the court became what I called the Brooklyn Miners Sports Association. And we had our basketball net and our, our, our uh, hockey nets. And after school and on weekends and whenever we could, all the young little kids coming down and playing in this court. I just... Thought, here's an opportunity. Here's a touch point. You've given me a chance here to build some relationships with some young kids. 
I was teaching kids how to hold a baseball bat for the first time, how to hold a hockey stick, how to shoot a slap shot, how to tie your skates, because there was a little pond that was just on the other side of the court. So many moments of interaction with these young kids. I'll never forget this one little guy. Most of the time, I wanted to fire him to the moon. His name was Maverick. I called him the mayor of Brooklyn because he's never stopped talking. Just kind of yappy, this eight-year-old kid. And uh, so we, sp we spent hours and hours over the course of a year or two. We're sitting on our, on our, on our stairs that led up to our porch on our, on our house. And Kim brought out some popsicles. And we're like, popsicle break, and all the kids are running over, and we sit on the stairs, and I'm sitting at one of the top ones, and he's sitting just below me. And he's got his popsicle in his hand, and the next thing you know, he's leaning back against my knees. And he, and he turns around, and he goes, Rich, I, I wish you were to my dad. In that moment, I knew what the touch points were. I knew that God had called our family not just to Masters, but to Brooklyn, where we still live today. All those kids have moved out of the community. Growing up, other kids have moved in. I wish I could talk a little bit more about Ivan and Kevin. A couple of young kids from Pakistan who have gotten to meet their father just shooting hoops. And you know, God called us to that community, that neighborhood. He doesn't just call me. He calls each and every one of you. For us to be aware of the touch points that are around us. Remember, though, when you show up at a scene, show up prayed up, show up prepped up, and show up powered up. Show up ready to lead just like Peter and just like John. You know, I've learned over the years that it's vitally important for you to remember that you can only give out of yourself what you yourself have received. What happened to Peter and John before this moment, on the day of Pentecost, empowered them to live, move, and act this way on the day of Monday, or the day of Tuesday, or the day of Wednesday. The Spirit is not contained to the day of Pentecost. The Spirit works in and through us every moment of every day so that we can be sensitive to His leading and engage with the touch points that surround each of us. So Acts 3 is a story of two followers of Jesus who were captured by tragedy, captured by treasure, and captured by touch. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Um, just a couple of more thoughts as they gather, and then we're going to move into a moment of communion. What does Peter and John's story have to do with us today? You may be wondering what your God purpose is. You may have asked yourself once, what am I called to? What is it that I am de designed to do? What has the Lord given me that I can accomplish? For what purpose or reason or cause or... What's the change that can come out of my life? I'm just, I'm just me. You may have wondered that. We, we won't be able to ultimately answer those questions today. 
But I do know something, that as you continue to pursue Jesus and you continue to put him first, he will always, always direct your steps. You know, it might come as a surprise that we are all called to ministry. It's not just pastors who are called, and it's not just Bible college that prepares you. All of us have a calling to be ministers of the gospel. Now, I kind of nuance that a little bit. I think maybe there's a big M and a small M to ministers. And I do recognize and honor those who have sensed God's calling in a vocational way, in a career, in a job, to be a minister of the gospel, capital M. It's their, it's their day-to-day work. I honor the pastors of this church who have become good friends. The way that they serve with integrity and character and conviction. You have a good pastoral team here with the opportunity to see some incredible things move forward in the future and I honor that in each of them. Capital M. But I'm looking around the room today and I'm seeing a lot of small M ministers. Each each and every single one of you. You know, the capital M is why Masters exists. Right? And there's, there's a slide maybe that can come up. This, this is really, I think, what we, what we do. To expl- help to serve students so they can explore dreams and destiny. So they can explore the word and spirit and be equipped for kingdom purposes. This is, this is why we exist. And thank you for investing in our purpose training capital M ministers, but I'm not here for that reason today, unless you wanted to have a conversation at the end of the day today and we could chat about how maybe masters could come and help you to walk that calling. I've come here to meet with the ministers of the gospel, the small M today. What does it look like to be called to ministry, to be captured by a call Over the years, I've come to define it this way. This is just my definition, kind of based on Acts chapter 3. Bringing a heavenly touch to human tragedy, leading to personal and community transformation. How does that sound to you? Does this sound like something doable? Does this sound like something each and every one of us can participate in? We've spent time with Jesus so we can bring a heavenly touch to everywhere we go, wherever you work in this neighborhood, in this community, the human tragedy. It's heartbreaking to see what's going on around us. But when we've been with Jesus, our hearts move. So we step in to the human tragedy, praying and believing that through the power of the Spirit, Holistic transformation is going to take place. People are going to come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Lives are going to be set free, broken. Now been healed. This is a general explanation with a very broad scope. It covers many aspects of living and moving and having our being in Christ. It's a vision to simply live day to day by keeping in step with the Spirit. 
when we're captured by God, when we allow ourselves to be captured by Him, we can become so taken with Him, so fully in love with Him that our lives are utterly and totally in a position of surrender to Him. We come to this particular moment. I know that you've all been given, as you've walked in, these communion emblems. I have a little bit of experience with these pre-packaged things. I'm sure you do too. They don't tend to work all that well. So we'll take some time. We want reverence for this moment, but I know that sometimes they're a little bit hard to open. And so let's just pause for a moment, and if you can, just take the, the wafer. Acts chapter 3 happens because of Acts chapter 2. Through a man who in Luke 22 denies Jesus. After being given a task to prepare for the moment that we're going to remember right now. Luke 22 7 says this. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent, oh, Peter and John. Here we go again, Peter and John. He sent Peter and John, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. So they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you that I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This is a moment, this Passover celebration, the Last Supper, where Jesus is indicating to his followers that suffering would be part of the experience of following him. He says, there's going to be tragedy all around us, but there's going to be tragedy through my life. But the tragedy is not simply something that ends there. For the tragedy, the death that I will walk will ultimately lead to the transformation of the nations. And so we come to a moment and he leads those apostles through a moment of recognizing in advance what was about to happen. And so we do the same thing today. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so let's take this wafer.
as we remember the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your body that was broken for us. I think about the brokenness of the human story, the sin that has entered into the world. We are broken people. There is tragedy all around us. But Lord, this moment of celebration, this meal is a moment to remind ourselves that you repair the brokenhearted, that you step into the gap and heal, restore, and redeem. Thank you, thankful Lord, for your sacrifice, your body broken on the cross. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Let's partake of the juice. Lord, it was your shed blood on the cross that redeems our sinful natures. Your blood paid the price so that we did not have to. Your gift of grace in that moment, removing the divide, reconciling us to you, We are grateful people, Lord, that we do not have to live separated from you. We don't have to live in the tragedies of life. But just like you showed us as you entered into the human existence, by touch you came and transformed our futures, gave us a hope and a future. And through the sending of your spirit, You now enable the church to do the very same thing. So Lord, help us, I pray, to be that church, to be that spirit-filled community of believers here in Peterborough, captured by you to step out into the world and make a difference. I thank you, Lord, that you have made a difference in our lives, and I pray for each person in this room. Lord, I think about the many stories. And I pray, Father, that should there be any of us who are experiencing any sort of sickness or illness or disease, that in the name of Jesus, your healing power would flow through this room according to your will, according to your timing. Move, I pray, in this place. Lord, I ask that there is anybody in this room who has yet to accept you as Lord and Savior, to bow their hearts before you would today be the day 
through the hearing of the word, through the singing of songs and honoring and glorifying you. May their hearts be drawn and captured by you today. For you truly are the greatest treasure that we could ever have. And so today, just where we are sitting, or whether it's here in this room or online, we call out to you today. Receive you as Savior, healer, baptizer, and we know that one day you are a soon-coming king. So as we end today, Lord, this service, this gathering of believers at Northview, we pray that you will prepare us for what is ahead. Lord, I'm even anticipating that even as we leave the building and maybe head to a place to eat lunch or go into our communities and our neighborhoods, you're going to give us an opportunity to interact with some individuals that we may know well or maybe never met before. But Lord, because we've been captured by tragedy, we've been captured by treasure, we're now going to be captured by touch and we're going to step into opportunities to share the love of Jesus. Fill us, I pray, with every good gift to see this accomplished in your name. We love you, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to end with just whatever song is, might be ready for you to lead us. Whatever you sense is that song as we depart. Pastor Crystal, you've allowed me to close the service. I love you. Thank you for everything you're doing and leading this church. She simply wants you to know that she loves you. She's praying for you in an incredible week. And they'll see you back here on Sunday. Be blessed.